We will start today's session with a conversation with Ashmit Sadana, Chief Engineer, Engineering Capital. That's a very unusual title for a venture capitalist, and I love it. I, I love the fact that Ashmit loves, you know, deep tech and, and is capable of handling very, very deep uh, technology. So today's conversation fully uh, is expected to be very technical. So those of you who, who you're listening, you're welcome to ask questions, very technical questions in the public chat. Ashmit, let's catch up. It's been a while. Yes, what's thank going, you. What's going on? So um, since, since we last spoke, if you could just bring us a bit up to speed on what's happening with the funds. Uh, you must have probably rolled funds to a, a new fund, what fund size are you working with? And um, I'm just re-emphasizing uh, re the investment pieces. I'm very aware of it, but please uh, just set some context. Yes, thank you, Shamana. It's been, uh, you know, despite this global pandemic and all the trouble that we've had in the world, engineering capital has thrived. I raised my third fund earlier this year, which is a $60 million fund, $60 million, and yeah. I can to invest at very early stages as the first investor in companies which are taking technical risk. And we can talk more about that. So, um, Ashmit, I want to dig into the stage question a little bit. Um, now that we all have a lot more experience of doing this for, for a considerable amount of time, when you're trying to do deep tech, as an entrepreneur, I'm just going to ask you this from the entrepreneur's point of view and then would like to hear how you process it as an investor. If you're trying to do something very deeply technical, assuming you are a technical person yourself, otherwise very hard to do very deep tech, um, it's still a you know, significant amount of time that it takes to build something consequential. So um, what stage of the evolution of such an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur team's journey would you step in as engineering capital? That's a great investor, Shamana, because deep tech is not a binary state where you are either deep or you're not. It's actually, it's actually a continuum. If you think about someone who is taking science risks, all the way from where they're trying to invent something new from scratch, perhaps biotechnology, et cetera. We see a lot of companies like that. All the mm -hmm. way from something which you can whip up in a weekend, in a week, in a month. Um, is that sort of the continuum that I see of companies? Um, at Engineering Capital, I'm focused on companies which are taking less science risk, but more engineering risk. In other words, we are not sure exactly how to build it, but we do know that it can be built. Um, right. But there is some risk in engineering it. And perhaps uh, another way of thinking about it is you are a year or maybe two away from revenue. So um, that's another way of bounding the problem. If you think you are five years away, you are in the pure science risk category. If you are yeah. a month away, then there isn't enough risk. I mean, that's almost too easy. It's almost trivial in some sense of what right. you're building a year is but a way to risks are different. You have business risks, and that's not your domain. Your domain is more the deep tech. So, so then, uh, in, given that perspective, how do you validate? Let's say we assume that 
you know, there are a lot of great engineers at this point with lots of experience, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of, um, you know, research that has already happened. There are lots of tools. There are lots of stacks on which you can build, et cetera, et cetera. So the engineering risk has become manageable at many levels at this point. So I think the engineering risk is a very reasonable calculated risk. But then there's still the market risk. So what, uh, what uh, methodology do you apply today um, to do market risk validation? Yes, so just because I take engineering risk doesn't mean that I don't take market risk. The market risk okay. typically, comes, typically comes after you have engineered the product. And so I'm also taking that on. However, I have the luxury that in a few rare cases, and those are the most interesting companies and best suited to my portfolio, you can actually reduce the market risk because you know there is a need or a demand for a problem which is not served because someone has not yet engineered a solution. So let me give you an example of something yeah. which is in my current portfolio. I have a company called Refunction, which has built a solution to automatically refactor software, perhaps legacy software, perhaps written in Java. It's a large application, maybe half a million or two million lines of code, and it's been maintained for a decade. We can mm -hmm. automatically refactor that into a cloud-native stack. We can break it into containers. The containers talk to each other over networks. They can auto-scale. All of this is done automatically. Now, if you think about when we, when I first met the company and we discussed this problem, it was clear to me that the market risk was actually very low. When I talked to customers, they were absolutely interested in a solution like this. They said they would pay six or seven figures if they could get a product like this available to them. So I, in hindsight, correctly perceived the market risk to be very low, but the technical risk to be very high. This is a hard problem. You have a yeah. million bits of code which was written over a decade by large teams, perhaps who have changed, perhaps who are no longer even with the company. And you yeah. now have to break it into separate executables that are going to run in an entirely new stack. Most people felt it couldn't be done. In fact, when we did technical diligence, um, I talked to my friends at Google and Microsoft, and they were like, it can't be done. And then, of course, yeah. when we showed them the solution, they were like, well, can we buy the company? <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's a great example of yeah. very high technical risk, but low market risk. And how do you um, look at teams for something like this? Um, is it somebody coming out of a domain with a deep insight into how to solve the problem, even if they haven't written the actual product, but they have enough domain knowledge to signal to you as the investor that they know what they're talking about? In my case, because I am so early, they have almost never written any product. They may have some sample code or prototype or something, but it's rare. Usually there's nothing because I am so early. Um, in terms of the selection of the team, they have to have a some form of a technical insight, domain knowledge, enough to be able to take on a challenge like this. In yeah. addition to the usual characteristics of a great entrepreneur. So there are some characteristics that I consider horizontal characteristics. Entrepreneurs have to have grit. They have to have perseverance. They have to be a little bit iconoclastic. They have to be willing to break the rules in some interesting ways, think outside the box. Those are horizontal characteristics that an entrepreneur has to have. On top of yeah. that, in yeah. my particular space, in my area, and the companies that I'm looking at, 
some form of technical expertise is critical. And that's why I call the firm venture capital for engineers, because typically they're engineers. That doesn't mean they have to have a degree from MIT. Um, that would be amazing, and I'm happy to back people who have degrees from MIT. Uh, but that's not what, what I mean by they have to be an engineer. What I mean is they have to have an understanding of software, yeah. uh, of computer science, of how programs are written, and the ability to take on a challenge where maybe you are combining, combining some aspects of compiler design, operating systems, networking, distributed systems. You know, these are all standard topics in computer science that uh, you have to combine to build solutions like this. Ashmit, I'm going to ask you something that I am observing, and, and actually we've started covering quite extensively, and I'm very interested in it because it just, I think it's a very powerful trend, which is the platform as a service trend. Um, you know, historically, it's Salesforce.com that introduced this trend into the market really um, with Force.com uh, quite a long time ago, and they have a very robust platform on which a lot of entrepreneurs have built their products, and some of them have built huge companies. Viva is my favorite example. The company was built with $4 million in capital, and, and it's, uh, you know, they raised more capital but never really used it, you know. So this is a company that was built on that stack and, and just, just addressed something huge and, and executed phenomenally and built a really multi-billion dollar company. And now they're doing other products on their own stack and that they, they want to do a pass on and so on and so forth. So, um, But I, I'm hearing the pass trends from many different um, corners of our industry. Atlassian is doing a pass strategy. Twilio is doing a communication pass strategy. Um, uh, Shopify is doing an e-commerce uh, applications path strategy. So there's a there's a whole lot of examples, and I I think that this is one of the most powerful trends of the business today. Now, when you think about this in the context of the kind of deep tech and the kind of you know, in often you are doing infrastructure layer stuff. Um, how do you process this trend? If you ignore my current work for a second and just look at the state of the IT industry right now, what is happening is that for the first time in about four or five decades, if you think of the IT industry evolution over the last, you know, let's say half a century, for the yeah. first time, we are seeing innovation in all layers of the stack. The yeah. way the industry evolved in a long time ago, you know, first people were doing a lot of work on chips or computer systems, or for a while it was operating systems or particular applications that got built. And there was almost, you know, five-year, 10-year periods where that is where all the innovation occurred and everything else was pretty static. This changed about six, seven years ago with the emergence of the cloud, with the emergence of, you know, the acceptance of people doing infrastructure as a service, open source, um, lower cost startups, a lot of trends came together to a virtualization. A lot of trends came together, which for the first time opened up all layers of the stack to innovation. So today, yeah. as we sit over here, I can meet companies which are building, for example, uh, new forms of chips, uh, even attempting to break the Harvard architecture, uh, which is the famous computer architecture that most companies use, or the one nine limits that we talk about. I meet networking companies which are trying to do things outside of TCP IP. I meet infrastructure as a service companies. Of course, we have Amazon, Microsoft, and Google as the big providers, but also companies like Oracle and IBM and Software and others who are trying to do that. 
And then we have companies which you are referring to, which is sort of the classical PaaS layer, where people mm-hmm. are offering, like like Force.com, Salesforce, and Viva is a great example of that, where people have built great businesses on top of them. And then, of course, right at the top, we have applications. We have SaaS companies who are innovating in applications and building interesting businesses around a particular domain, a particular problem that they're offering as a complete solution to the end user. So innovation is occurring at all stages. And when I evaluate a company, what I look at is where is this particular company's predominant area of innovation? If most of the innovation is in the end user, end problem, the way they have solved the solution, then don't innovate in the other layers. Don't take that risk. And it makes perfect sense um, if you are a healthcare-focused SaaS provider uh, to, to build it on, for example, the Salesforce platform. That's a very reasonable choice. Um, they could have built it on the Amazon platform. It would have been an equally reasonable choice. I think they could have been equally successful on a different platform over there. But if you are making an innovation where you are leveraging something deeper down in the stack, then you have to think, where is it that I should do this? What interface do I want to provide which brings out my innovation and allows my creativity to flourish uh, in the best possible way? So that's really what you have to think about. What is the best place for your innovation to flower, um, where you can build a real business around. And it's an art. It's not a simple, straightforward answer. Um, You may have a great insight on an algorithm. The right answer may be to build a chip for it. And today it's actually possible to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you know, the I would say the, the platform and the service world right now is emerging with the assumption that the uh, most of the infrastructure layers, innovations are already in there. The domain knowledge for a particular domain or a particular functional area is where the innovation is happening. And then the, you know, whether it's Shopify for e-commerce or Atlassian in the enterprise collaboration space or, you know, et cetera, Twilio in the communication path space, that's where the, the you know, this, kind, this class of companies are operating. So I guess where, where I'm going with this, Ashmit, is that where is the equivalent of this in the infrastructure layer? For example, I know um, we cover Qualys very uh, extensively. Um, I know Philippe Corto for 20 years really well, and I've, I've kind of listened to his thinking evolve. And, and one of the things he used to sell me on all the time, Philippe is a sales guy, right? He's, he's always telling me on how great Qualys is. So, yes, I understand Qualys is great, but, you know, the, the question that arises in my mind is that he thinks that they've created this great architecture on which it's kind of like the razor and blade strategy where, you know, on that architecture you can bring in a lot of different components of a holistic security solution. They already have a broad portfolio of security solutions, and and his vision has always been that, you know, there will be, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 more products, but it will all be on that architecture. However, I haven't seen Qualys open that up as a platform, as a service, such that other innovators can build products on top of other security products on top of that architecture. So that's kind of what I'm asking you for is, is insights technically, is there any gating item for the infrastructure layer players to also do the same thing that the application layer players are doing? 
Um, there isn't a technical gating item. What is going on right now is that people have business strategies that they are following, and they are trying to own certain parts of that stack. And of course, people choose business strategies that play to their advantage. So why did Microsoft you know, really position Azure all around the enterprise in Office 365 and the benefits of Office is because they had a legacy, um, almost monopolistic position you know, with yeah. their Office product. And they were able to leverage that into the cloud in a very clever, sophisticated, and nuanced way. Has been a fabulous strategy. So every player is sitting over there trying to think, what is the way that I can grab the biggest piece of this pie? And that yeah. is what drives architectural decisions, technical decisions, business decisions, partnership decisions for these companies. So you always have to evaluate it from their shoes and say, why would they do it? Conversely, there are parts that these people don't want to do, otherwise for business reasons. For example, um, even Microsoft, which invests very heavily in security, has enormous and very sophisticated security infrastructure, will not take responsibility for your security. They don't offer security products to you directly That's because right. they don't want to um, own that part of the problem because frankly, it's a very messy and very difficult problem in the security space in particular. So you have to evaluate these platforms, these large companies from that perspective while keeping in mind that there are some unique advantages that the large guys have. For example, in, particularly in infrastructure as a service, there are very, very significant economies of scale. So yes, it's yes. very hard to put up a data center in 40 different locations in the world, run a CDN through them at scale, have 24 by 7, 99.99 or 999, types of uptime and offer that to customers. And that takes, there are enormous economies of scale in doing it. Azure and uh, Amazon and Google are exploiting that advantage to their benefit right now. Um, and so that's the landscape, you know, that's the market landscape that exists today that an entrepreneur has to innovate in. They have to think and see, okay, that's what's out there. How can I create something unique, something special and grab my fair share of this market out there? Yeah, you know, um, the motivation for the infrastructure layer, whether it's storage or security or networking, um, is not very different. It's, it's behind. I think timeline-wise it's behind. But if they play out the argument with me for a second, um, you know, for a SaaS company, let's say, you know, a SaaS company that has achieved, and I'm talking about application layer SaaS, that has achieved, let's say, $200 million ARR by selling one product. And this is, this is out there. Lots of companies right now are in the $100 million, $200 million ARR range with one product. But they have to now move out of that one product and broaden the portfolio to be a successful public company that goes to a billion dollars in revenue. And in that quest, I think a lot of them are realizing that a path strategy may be reasonable because, you know, integrating an acquisition on a different stack is very difficult. So if you study Atlassian strategy, Atlassian is constantly acquiring from their own path ecosystem, developer ecosystem, because everybody is building on their stack. So they have the Atlassian marketplace, so the customers are the same customers. They have the relationships with the customers. So Stack is the same, the products are built on the same stack, so it's a, it's a very easy integration, it's a very easy scaling, and then you can build a diverse product portfolio on top of that 
strategy. Now, if you translate that same strategy to the infrastructure, the security, let's go back to the security example, same story, exact same story, exact same motivation, um, and, and the stack issue is, exa is exactly the same. For an entrepreneur's perspective, being able to build on somebody else's platform and be able to and stack and, and then be able to access that company's marketplace is very attractive. And from a security industry in particular, you know, CISOs have had to deal with so many vendors, right? Security industry is so full of innovations, so many startups, so many point products. It's very difficult to get, as a small startup, it's very difficult to get audience with a CISO these days. So if you are part of the portfolio of an existing player who already has a seat at the table, like a Qualys, like a Palo Alto Network, like a Proofpoint, like a Zscaler, and if you can get into somebody's marketplace and, and be part of somebody's stack and, and kind of go as a team, it's an easier sale. But this I'm not seeing yet is my point. So, Samra, I completely agree with you that the old thumb rule of venture capital, where it was not possible to build a large independent company on someone else's platform, was not a viable strategy. That was the thumb rule. And people use that. No when they, it's no longer true. I completely agree with you. And I think um, it's really instructive to look at two recent examples of Dropbox and Apple and see what they have done for their infrastructure. So let's look at Dropbox, very simple application, obviously very successful company, which leveraged the public cloud hyperscaler infrastructures, but then yeah. started building their own data centers because they wanted to reduce costs. Apple started using the public cloud infrastructure, started not building their own data centers and leveraging these hyperscaler data centers because they didn't have the economies of scale. Even a company of the size and scale of Apple could not find enough value in doing it themselves. Not that they don't run their own data centers, they run their own data centers also, but they are also leveraging the hyperscalers, the infrastructure as a service platforms in a very significant way now. So it's case by case. Um, I think the thumb rule that you can't build a large company was disproved. Viva is a great example uh, of yeah, something yeah. built on a platform in a very nice way. And that thumb rule is not something that I apply. I believe there's innovation at all layers. If you have your own way of capturing your innovation, of building some moat around it, there's barriers to entry that you can build, you can build a large business, a venture, even a venture scale sized large business. Yeah, I was talking, uh, you know, uh, maybe two weeks ago with a, an old friend of mine, we've known each other for 20 years. Uh, you may know him, Murli Tirumali. He's um, done several uh, startups in the storage space. He's just done one, Portworks, and sold it to Pure Storage. Yes. Pure Storage is, a, is kind of like an old school storage company that's, that was a hardware company that's trying to go from hardware to software. It's trying to climb up the stack, and, and this Portworks acquisition is, uh, is perfect for, uh, you know, for their climbing up the stack mode. And I was talking to Murli, and I said exactly like, Murli, you guys should, with Portworks, you should do a platform as a service so that you can really kind of sit at the center of the innovation at that layer. Yeah, so I do know Murli. He's a fabulous entrepreneur, and I think the Portworks Pure Storage merger makes absolute sense yeah. um, because 
storage has a challenge, right? I mean, the innovation, the, the progress is all moving in a different direction from where their sweet spot used to be. Um, yeah. And that's why I think Murli can help them innovate. I wouldn't jump to uh, to the answer of that is what the right answer is, that you should open it up as a platform. Um, I could think of other creative ways. For example, you know, the hybrid uh, uh, the hybrid cloud, hybrid enterprise is another very powerful trend, which I think mm -hmm. would, would play to the advantage of a player like a Portworks plus um, pure storage as a combined company. So there are alternative strategies you have to think about, but that's the job of the product manager. That's the job of the CEO, is to lay out the vision and the strategy based on what's out there. But yes, yeah. is, there, is there an opportunity to create fabulous, interesting companies on paths? Completely believe that. Absolutely, yes. Well, you know, the, uh, I think I agree with you in that it's the pure storage Portworth deal, the, the big opportunity right now is simply selling Portworth to the pure storage customers, and there are like thousands of those customers. So they, they almost don't need to do anything else. Just, they just need to execute on their core strategy. But um, the reason I'm, you know, spending so many cycles on the path strategy is because for my universe, you know, my goal is to help a million entrepreneurs reach a million dollars and beyond in annual revenue. In that world, um, you know, every time I encounter a security entrepreneur, I have to think about how to get this guy an audience with the buyers. Yes. And we always run into this problem of that the the CISO's mental bandwidth is really hard to tap into, and, and that, that applies to a lot of enterprise buyers um, and so on. So I think, you know, where these clusters, whereas, you know, if you look at a Shopify ecosystem, people who are building apps on Shopify, it's very easy to get to customers through their marketplace. People who are building on the Atlassian marketplace, very easy to get to customers through, their, through that marketplace and, and so on. So I am very much looking for these ecosystems that, you know, entrepreneurs can tap into. And it's a win-win because uh, the business model is really powerful, right? 30%, you know, anywhere between 15 to 30% of the revenues go to the platform owner. So it's basically very profitable revenue if a product finds product market fit and can be sold to a large number of customers it's very profitable revenue for the platform owners. So anyway, that's... Completely agree. It is definitely a value that is provided by these marketplaces. I just had one of my companies last Gnostic just last week launch on the Amazon marketplace uh, in mm -hmm. partnership with them. So yeah, I, do, I see this more and more. And if a company can leverage the distribution benefit that they get, it is yes. something that they should take. Look, I mean, you've also been, Shamana, you yourself are on the vanguard of, you know, letting people understand that the only way to build a company is not a venture-backed company. Um, you right. can, an entrepreneur can be very successful building a business that would not be interesting to a VC and yet very lucrative to the entrepreneur. You can build right. a $10 million business, a $1 million business, a $20 million business and be a very successful entrepreneur, be in the, yeah. in the 0.1% of of the country without ever taking venture capital. And so people do forget that that exists. And I think that we, we will see a lot more of those companies coming up and more innovation leveraging PaaS and IAS marketplaces. Very, very good point. And, and you know, we, we have formalized some of these uh, 
points of views in, in what we call the bootstrapping to exit category. I mean, if you look at Atlassian's acquisitions, you know, maybe a small number of people, two, two to five people, building something, selling through the marketplace and getting acquired by Atlassian itself for $30, $50 million. That means basically two guys are making $50 million. That's a really successful exit. Exactly right. Exactly right. And I think um, the media tends to, the popular media, the popular press tends to miss how attractive and valuable that alternative approach is. I think we overweight in our popular press and media on the venture back model, which is, of course, a viable model and a good model. I mean, I pursue that. Um, so uh, it obviously exists, but it does tend to get overweighted in media. No question about it. So what else is going on in your universe that uh, you want to discuss? Well, you know, what excites me, of course, as an engineer myself, is what is happening in technology. So yeah. I'm always looking at core technical trends and trying to see where are their hard problems, what are the challenges out there. And one well, thing talk which about I like, them. Talk about, uh, talk about areas in which you're looking for companies. Yes. So two recent trends that I've started, that I've observed and I've met, started talking about is one which it builds on an old trend that people have talked about called data is the new oil. You've probably heard yeah. this case where data is this very important commodity um, that of course is driving businesses like Google and Twitter and Facebook, et cetera. What I have observed is that data is the new oil and data is the new asbestos. In other words, data is toxic. Data can kill your company if you're not careful how you manage it, how you think about it, and how you plan for it. And uh, one of the best examples recently, of course, is TikTok, uh, a company which is literally being threatened with being killed simply because of the data that they own. And this data is not something that you would think of as very special. I mean, this is not classified data or technical data or secret data. This is just data about people dancing in videos. You know, these are teenagers having fun. Um, so you would think it's very innocuous, and yet because they have this very large volume of data, and because we are able to infer so much information from the metadata of this, that our government feels threatened with the data that TikTok uh, owns and controls. And this is a trend that I am seeing in multiple places. So I have two companies now which are working with this trend, Concentric and Robust Intelligence, uh, which are you know solving, the data, in one case, the data contamination problem, uh, in the other case, you know, identifying what is PII, et cetera, in uh, unstructured data. So uh, data is going to be the new asbestos, and there will be entire companies, categories of companies created uh, in this space. Interesting. Any other trend that you want to talk about? Uh, the other trend is one that uh, struck me when I watched the Turing Award presentation by uh, professors Hennessy and Patterson, who have this wonderful observation about the end of Moore's Law, and the increase in workload, in compute workloads from artificial intelligence. So AI workloads, model sizes today, are compounding, in other words, doubling roughly every three months, much, much faster than even Moore's Law at its heyday. And these two things are on a collision course. Moore's Law, of course, has slowed down. It's no longer compounding as fast. And so that is creating enormous pressure in the software stack. And uh, if any of your viewers are interested, I recommend they go and uh, look up uh, the Turing Award lecture by uh, Hennessy and Patterson uh, to see what they talk about, what will be the implications of that over the next five to 10 years, and therefore where companies will be created, all the way from new types of chip companies 
to where things are in the software stack and how applications will change because of this pressure on the stack. Interesting. So, you know, I have one thought that I want to share with you. You would appreciate this knowing you. Um, you know, we are facing this in the whole Facebook controversy right now. Facebook was built by a programmer, right, a young programmer who hasn't really studied philosophy and hasn't really thought deeply about any philosophical issue because that's not his background. He's been busy scaling Facebook to world domination, but with a very specific set of, uh, you know, KPIs, one of them being engagement, which basically translates into addiction. Yes. So this is just one example. Artificial intelligence, as it filters through society or, you know, spreads through society, we have a ton of engineers and programmers who are building very high-impact fabrics of society with no background in philosophy. And I think one of the big questions of our generation is going to be how to merge philosophy with algorithm. Uh, you are absolutely right, Shramana. This is 100% uh, true. This is one of the most important questions of our time. But let's recognize that this has always been the case with technology. All the way back to Plato, Remember, Plato was railing about against technology, and what is the technology that he was railing against? He said it changed the way our brains work, it changes the way our minds work, and we should not adopt this technology. The technology that he was railing against was writing. He didn't want people to write. He wanted them to think in their minds. And it is a fact that when you write things, you change the way you think about things, and it changes our behavior as they in the entire human race. In fact, uh, uh, you know, um, Homo sapiens is a great book which talks about the impact that writing had on civilization. Uh, same thing happened with nuclear technology. Uh, Oppenheimer was not a philosopher, he was a physicist. Uh, the Manhattan Project was built by physicists and engineers. Uh, yeah. And of course, it had a huge impact on the world. Uh, the steam engine was not built by a philosopher. Stevenson was also an engineer. So uh, every time we built a new technology, we have faced this challenge. I believe humanity is up to it. And yes, today the crucible is Facebook, Twitter, Google. They are on the vanguard of where this battle will be fought. And we as yeah. a society need to decide what we are going to do about it. Uh, we can't just leave it to Mark Zuckerberg or leave it to uh, Jack Dorsey uh, to decide what will they want to impose, you know, what is truth, what is right, what is wrong, who should get, who should get engagement. Um, those are very important decisions with social, political, economic, cultural impact that uh, the society is going to have to deal with. Very good. On that note, to be continued, 